Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern day Asian American woman. My name is Helen. I'm Janet. I'm Mel. And I'm Yvette. On today's episode, we are going to explore a topic that I have personally been very interested in. I've shared on our podcast that I have struggled with my relationship with alcohol for some time now, and I'm currently doing well and successfully employing a method of moderation, but there have definitely been periods where I had a rather toxic relationship with alcohol, and I continue to be interested in actively understanding and managing this relationship. The topic of addiction is also rather taboo in Asian culture, so it is often unaddressed and misunderstood. Many people are unaware, uneducated, unprepared, and suffer alone. Research found that Asian Americans between 18 and 25 drank heavily, although they were considered a low-risk group with alcohol abuse, and that 14% of Asian Americans or Pacific Islanders between 18 to 25 need substance abuse treatment, which is only slightly lower than the 21% average with other groups. Today, we are lucky enough to have Yvette join us in this conversation. Yvette is a Filipino-American and certified addiction specialist. Yvette works with ADAP, the Asian American Drug Abuse Program dedicated to serving Asian Pacific Islanders and other underserved communities with substance abuse services throughout Los Angeles County. And she's here today with us to share her personal experience with addiction. Welcome to the Asian Boss Girl podcast, Yvette. Thank you. Yay. I'm so honored. Hi. I'm so honored to be on your podcast. Just because the past podcasts have celebrated women that are of Asian um, background and all the different and and successful things they have accomplished. Well, thank you so much for being here, Yvette. So we wanted to ask you about your personal experience with addiction, which, like I mentioned earlier, addiction is still so taboo within Asian culture that I think it's going to be really beneficial for our audience to hear your story from whatever perspective it is that you feel comfortable with sharing. So can you share with our listeners how your addiction began? So there's different types of addiction. Everyone kind of categorizes what kind of addict they are. So I was like all of the addicts. I was like the the binger on the weekends when I was younger. And then I became the everyday user to like this devastated my life. Um, I hit rock bottom. A little bit about myself. I, as it was said, come from Filipino parents that migrated to the U.S. to build the American dream. Um, They met in college and had three kids and me, I was the eldest. Uh, They did not, their marriage didn't last that long and they were divorced by the time I was five. So it was really traumatic for me because my dad was like my best friend and my protector. Hmm. Um, My mom, she remarried soon after that. And I believe she uh, remarried really quick because at the time, um, a divorced mother with um, kids um, 
carried such a stigma of being a divorcee that she just didn't, she really didn't want to um, burden herself with that. So I, I believe she got married really quick because of that. Um, but unfortunately the man she would marry would be the person that would cause the abuse and terror that me and my siblings would encounter almost daily for years. So from the age of like about five to 12, I was physically and um, sexually molested. Um, and then I think back for me, like the most traumatic part um, was the fact that my mom, who is now my protector, was, wasn't able to even protect herself. So I didn't feel real protected. Um, I remember so many instances where I watched as she was physically beaten by my stepfather and it was so terrifying. I partied so much during middle school and high school. I guess I started because um, my mom did end the marriage and I felt this sense of freedom from, um, from this terror. I started with alcohol and pot and my drug of choice back then was cocaine, but using anything really in my adolescent teenage years to me was so fun and exciting and adventurous. But now I realize why. It was the best way for me to escape any of the feelings and the trauma of the abuse that I endured for years. Um, during those years, people called me the party girl. They called me, they said I was a life of the party. And for me, that was like the best thing to be called because it meant that I was fun and accepted. And, and during those years, um, that was what I really wanted was acceptance, validation from other people because I was living with so much shame and guilt. And I believe that's one thing that Asian Americans are brought up with, with a lot of shame and guilt. And for me, that was so prevalent all through growing up because of the abuse um, that I encountered. And I, I really think too, um, in some way, I kind of blamed myself for it, thinking maybe if I shouldn't have been certain places at certain times, maybe it wouldn't have happened to me, but it did. One of the things I really struggled with, um, and I was called... Um, a people pleaser. I wanted everyone to like me and to accept me for who I was because of the shame and guilt that I lived with. While I was using, you know, I built up from alcohol to pot to, of course, then cocaine. I remember one day while we were out partying, I, I really wanted to um, get high on cocaine. I couldn't find any. So someone introduced me to methamphetamine and I was about 23 back then. I really didn't know about meth. I used it and found out very quickly how user-friendly it was. It wasn't like alcohol where um, the next day you wake up and you have a hangover and you kind of feel guilty about what you did. It wasn't like cocaine where you got a stuffed up nose, you couldn't breathe and you just felt guilty about using this was so user-friendly. The next day, all you needed was another hit and you're good to go. And little did I know was that that was just going to take over my life. I mean, 23 years of my life, this would, it would just take over. Um, so I really never thought that I had a problem with substances. Mm -hmm. um, I went through life through, um, middle school and high school, thinking that I was just a party girl and it was okay. Um, everyone was doing it, but not to the extreme that I was. I was the kind that every weekend I had to be out there using and partying. Um, a lot of my friends, they could only go out like one day a week. I was one, one day out of the weekend, I was out there all weekend. That was pretty much my life when I was younger. And being Asian, it was so instilled or being Filipino it was so instilled to, um, have education as your, as your priority. So I learned how to maintain my grades and maintain my attendance to where, you know, I would, I would graduate. I was so calculating that way. I don't know how I did it, but I was calculating in that manner. 
So um, my parents knew that, that I was quote unquote buck wild, but really couldn't say anything because, you know, mm-hmm. I was getting through school. Um, they just thought that, um, you know, all they really wanted me to do was graduate high school at that point. And when they saw that happening, they were like, okay. And I was able to go on to college, which was, you know, amazing with at the rate I was going at the time. So I did complete high school. Everything fell into place. I did complete college. Everything fell into place. And then I went on to nursing school and nursing school was where um, I really thought, gosh, if I could do this, I could do anything because I was using, I was partying. I was being that party girl still. And I did until um, two weeks before I was graduating nursing school, my fiance, my fiance at the time um, was found dead in the backyard, shot in the head. Oh my gosh. another traumatic event in my life Mm. but I was able to graduate nursing school take the boards and pass that so really everything always just fell into place for me in my life Um, but the death of my fiance wasn't part of my plan so um, what happened after that was me being introduced again to um, to methamphetamine when I was like 23 and I just started using and I don't know what happened because it was such a whirlwind. And like I said, it, I just kept using. I didn't think I had a real, real problem till I was in my late 20s or early 30s. And um, it was just because the denial was so strong in me. It wasn't until I was unemployed and homeless that I realized that, oh, wow, I guess I do have a problem. But of course, the addict in me minimized that and said, well, you know what? Um, you still have places to sleep because I was couch surfing and I still had a car. And I wasn't on the sidewalk asleep, sleeping on the sidewalk. So I, you know, my addict mentality thought I was okay. And that was me all the way until I got treatment. (laughs) So most of my adulthood was using. I think a lot of people, whether it's with, you know, alcohol or drug, uh, drug use, it's always like, it's a very social activity. And you kind of mentioned that, you know, you weren't sure if it's a social thing or if you're addicted. What do you think is, or was a source of your addiction? And, you know, what are your thoughts on there being a genetic component to addiction? So I think the source of my addiction was trying to endure all the feelings, the shame, the embarrassment, the guilt, the anger that I had for while I was growing up, we were never taught to do that. We were never shown that it was okay to have feelings. Um, Basically, all we knew was that we were supposed to go to school, do what we're we're supposed to do. Um, If my mom ever had to talk to us, it was because we were doing something wrong. If she didn't talk to us, we were doing everything correctly. So I didn't know how to, how to deal with all these feelings. I didn't even know, were they even feelings? I didn't know Mm -hmm. what was going on. I just Mm -hmm. knew that it didn't feel good. So I think the source of my addiction was trying to comb through, what was I going through, through those times? Why, why was it so appealing to use? And that, I think, um, when I say it was so exciting to use, it was because I didn't have to feel those feelings of the shame, mm. the embarrassment, the guilt, especially the anger I had, not only towards, and, and not to say that I had anger towards um, my mom for, you know, for allowing this to happen, because she probably, you know, she didn't have any control over it. Um, she was overpowered, um, not anger towards my dad, but just anger over the whole situation about what happened, you know, and why mm-hmm. was it me? And my faith has a lot to do with um, my recovery and being able to accept that everything that has happened to me was for a purpose. God had mm-hmm. a purpose. And it was so 
I can be able to share my story. And um, being a female Asian, we are not to have feelings. <laughs> we can't show, we weren't, we aren't brought up to show feelings. We are just to do what we're told. And, and that was it. Um, you know, um, speak when spoken to and kids too, that that's how it is. And I know in my family, I remember growing up and my, my mom, we would be going to a family party. My mom would say, when you enter, greet everyone and don't say a word after that. <laughs> Those are our instructions. Do not say a word after that. Just greet everyone. And that was it. Do not speak unless they ask you a question and, you know, make sure you do it respectfully. Um, do not laugh loud. Do not, you know, do not smirk. It was, how do you deal with that? Um, you know, now the things that I know now, if I wouldn't have known then, like, how was I, I, I didn't know what I was feeling. And so my addiction really came from that because I didn't understand it. No one taught me about feelings. No one taught mm. me about, it's okay to cry and be sad. It was more like, don't cry. There's no reason to cry. You're not dead. Don't cry. Mm. Um, don't laugh so loud. You're a young lady. Um, just any kind of emotion that went, I guess, there was not even a balance. It was no emotion. And, um, you know, and, and I think growing up like that was difficult. Um, what were you supposed to do with that? Mm -hmm. And my, my only coping mechanism, my only coping skill was I'm going to go use because it makes me feel good. I don't have to mm -hmm. feel that. And now I'm being good because I don't feel the, I don't feel anything and I don't have to express anything, but I guess I went a little overboard. It lasted 23 years. So, mm -hmm. um, I think that was my source of that. And as far mm -hmm. as genetic components, so to me, genetics is so intricate and holds so much information about all individuals. And I'm sure there is some connection along the line, but I also know there are possible solutions to any kind of abnormality. So just like any disease, like diabetes, you have a greater risk of acquiring that disease or like diabetes if there's a familial history of it. Mm. But you can also develop diabetes if, right, if you, if you intake too much sugar, um, or carbohydrates, um, and your body can't maintain or use the insulin or produce enough insulin. So on the, on the um, addiction side, if you're exposed to substances that are used um, as a way to cope for the Delta role models in your life as a child, you may have a greater chance of also developing those same coping skills as well, right? But just like mm -hmm. any disease, if there are preventive measures that are taken, it will lessen the chances of developing that disease. So as I'm talking about this prevention, having information empowers you. Like if mm. you know, hey, diabetes or heart disease, is uh, there's a high risk in my family, you kind of learn about it, learn what kind of diet you should be doing, learn how much exercise you should be doing. And with um, having seen people use substances being, you know, using alcohol during parties or whatever, maybe you might want to check into that. Um, what are other ways that I could have fun instead of having alcohol at a party? You know, mm. um, we can, we can do games or whatever. It doesn't necessarily need to be alcohol to have fun. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's other solutions and just having information like that empowers you to not, you know, go overboard or, you know, acquire a disease. For sure. For sure. 
And and thank you so much for sharing that story with us, Yvette. Going back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, Asian American parents not really having us express emotion, I think is something that a lot of our listeners and even ourselves here on this podcast, we can definitely side with. It's a lot of showing love through, you know, action and not through words and telling us not to speak up so loudly and working hard. And it, it kind of just mutes those emotions from us and can sometimes lead us to things where we can express ourselves, whether it's through some addiction or some type of substance or, you know, alcohol and and things like that. And I also just wanted to say that, you know, I think we hear a lot about stories about addiction and, and about like where people are now, but we don't really hear about the source of it, especially like you mentioned earlier, yours came from abuse because of the shame and the guilt that is the source of all of it, right? So the fact that you are able to share this so openly, I just want to say thank you so much for being here and, and sharing your story with us. Almost definitely. Um, you know, as you were sharing your story, I was curious, you know, at, at what age were you introduced to substances and how were you able to hide this from your parents if you did? So... um I was introduced to substances at around 12. Oh, well, okay. So um, introduced as far as using, but I saw um, family members, um, mm-hmm. you know, drinking um, and yeah, a lot of drinking I saw, um, especially at parties, they, everyone drank, they, you know, yeah. drank and they, oh, the other thing is gambling, you know, people play mahjong yeah. or mm-hmm. card games. Yeah. And of course there was a lot of smoking of cigarettes and drinking, you know, the men would drink, um, the men always would drink. I just, I always remembered them drinking um, and us being Filipino, they would drink and have Bolutan, and that's that's just like drinking and having like little snacks to go with their drink mm. and then the women would play uh, mahjong and and you know and sorry mahjong is also gambling if there's money involved <laughs> that's very true that's right <laughs> yep my dad would always say go away helen you can't watch this and i'd be like what's going on this looks fun yeah, yeah. and so and you know it was a way too that the we would have family parties and our family parties would last all night long because they would be playing mahjong and you know and that's an addiction in itself. I mean, gambling. And I mean, all night long and they're, you know, playing and whatnot, but it was a way, it was a source um, that they had to be able to pay for, for the party that they were having. Cause they would have mm. um, in Filipino culture, it was called Bolato where um, if the, if someone won, they would put money towards the house. So that would help pay for the party that they were, they were having. Mm. So mm. that, so it was, it was accepted. It was acceptable because, you know, they're gambling, but they're also helping whoever was hosting the party pay for the party. So mm. um, I, I remember that when I was young, that's how I was introduced to, Oh, Drinking must be fun. All the adults are doing it. I see. Yeah. I think I was in, it was the end of sixth grade. I'll never forget. It was summertime. And we were, one of my friends, we were having a pool party and someone said they had seven up. And now I think back and they kept going, oh, it's seven and seven. And I didn't know. And I know I took a big swig, thought it was seven up and it was something else that was awful. Mm -hmm. Um, And within, I think 10 or 15 minutes, I felt good. (laughs) Mm-hmm. everything was funny and that was the first experience I had with using was alcohol so I was about 11 but then it, you know that was just an experience um wasn't really something that I went I took off from it wasn't until a year after that um when I was in um middle school that drinking was so it was adventurous because first of all to get alcohol you had to be 21 mm-hmm. and so my friends because I was um I was Asian and 
I don't know, I guess Filipinos weren't so known back then. Um, they would dress me up and have me go to the liquor store and I would go and buy beer. <laughs> so that was one of the adventures that I would do. And it was, um, we would buy, I would go in, buy a case of beer and I couldn't believe I would, I was 12 years old. I had yeah, makeup they, on. Yeah. And they believe, you know, I mean, I'm assuming you had a fake ID in order to get and the beer. I didn't even have that. And back oh, wow. then, so understand I'm 54. So this is back a long time ago when people really didn't get in trouble for those things. They didn't, I mean, IDs were, I remember IDs were like paper cardboard things. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. You could pro probably photocopy. Um, I just remembered back then it was so easy to do so many things. Um, I was buying alcohol at, at 12. It was just mm -hmm. so that easy. And I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I remember one time I went to the liquor store and they sold me this case and the case is pretty heavy. It was a case of um, bottled beer. And they had me in high, my friends put me in high heels and makeup and I couldn't believe I got away with it. And I, here I am 12 years old running across a field with a case of beer in high heels. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and the field was wet. So imagine the high heels are digging into, <laughs> digging into the grass. It was a, it must've been the funniest thing you ever saw, but I was such a kid and it was the adrenaline and, and just excitement of it really got me. And I think that's what got started my addiction was just excitement mm -hmm. of being able to get away with it. And then how were you able to hide it from your parents once um, it got, you know, beyond just the alcohol? So um, I was, my mom was a single parent because of course she left um, her husband. And that this is when I, you know, felt like I could do whatever I want. There was, I, I felt like there was no threat for me. It was my mom. She, she couldn't even protect herself. How is she going to, how is she going to have any control over me? This is just the mindset I was in, I was so, I became very rebellious um, at that age. Um, I would stay the night at my friend's house. She wouldn't know what happened the night before. And then she would come and pick me up and, you know, I was showered and cleaned up and okay. So she didn't know. I would always, I would always find a way to stay the night at a friend's house. Um, and I never told her, I think a couple of times she, I, I did get caught drunk. Um, she said, you know, she, she was really mad, um, tried to ground me. That didn't work because of course, her being a single mom, she worked a lot and I was able just to sneak out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, I was really rebellious back then. Um, so I really didn't tell her she knew there was something going on, but we got to a point to where she said, if you go to school and maintain your grades and get through high school, that's all I want because, you know, you have to do that. That's just you, that there's no ands, ifs or buts. You can't, you know, you, you can't drop out. You have to go to school. And I was like, okay. Um, you know, and I was so manipulative and calculating back when I was in high school that I learned how to do that. I learned how to, okay, I can miss one day a week and then I won't get expelled. Mm -hmm. um, I know how to, um, I, if I study the night before really well, I can probably get a B and maybe an A on the test and then I'll be okay. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I just, I just knew how to do things and everything always fell in the right place when it had to. And I think for me, that was my downfall was because mm. I don't know what happened. I don't know what it was. Again, I'm going to say it was God because it was beyond my control that these things happened with how I was going about my life. Um, and it just got, it made it worse because I mm. made me arrogant thinking that I can handle whatever. I started using alcohol. I went to pot. I didn't really like it. I didn't really like hot after a while because it, it just lasted way too long and I didn't have any control over it. 
And I think that was one of the things too, um, as part of my addiction, I have control issues. I want to control everything because I didn't have any control when I was younger with the abuse Mm -hmm. that I was encountering. Mm -hmm. Um, so it made me, um, have control issues. I always have Mm -hmm. to be in control of, of what, what I'm doing. And sometimes even would love to control the people around me. Um, and so to me, cocaine gave me that feeling of being in control. It gave me superhuman powers. I thought, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, it was so that drug was so strong. Um, I was introduced to that at a very early age. I believe I was 14. I just entered high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the way it escalated. Um, it didn't seem, it seemed um, gradual at the time because when you're young, you know, a year seems like forever. But when I think about it now, how quickly it escalated and just mm-hmm. made me spiral out. Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than a leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With free and gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Skillshare is a sponsor of today's episode. So working in social media, it's constantly changing and you always need to be sharpening your skills in the art of storytelling, especially through Instagram. A huge shift I'm seeing is the emphasis on video content, whether it's through IG stories or reels. A class that I have on my radar is Halise Navarez's video for Instagram, tell an engaging story in less than a minute. As a digital storyteller herself, she shares her tips on captivating your audience in 60 seconds. Sounds like a fun challenge for ABG. Skillshare is an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. With so much to explore, real projects to create, and the support of fellow creatives, Skillshare empowers you to accomplish real growth. They have classes on a variety of topics such as film and video, creative writing, graphic design, freelance and entrepreneurship, just to name a few. Every human was born to create. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com ABG, where our listeners can get a one-month free trial of premium membership. Again, that's one month free of premium membership at Skillshare.com ABG. Thank you for sharing that, Yvette. Um, wow. So that that is that 23-year-long journey. You took us through the journey of how one substance would lead to the next. And listening to your story, it makes sense based on um, the feelings that you expressed that you were feeling and, and what, you know, why it kind of escalated. Uh, what eventually was it that, you know, made that clicked in your head or that, that happened and that caused you to seek help? <sighs> Let me see. So... I really wasn't seeking help. And I'm going to, I'm going to be very transparent. I was in my addiction for so long. That was my, that was my get out of any kind of anything excuse card. 
if anyone said, look at your life, I'd say, look at my life. I'm an addict. What, what, what do you expect from me? I'm an addict. You know, don't expect me to get a job because I'm an addict. Don't expect me to be responsible because I'm an addict. That was my, it, it became my best friend after a while. I just knew how to just to say, you know, forget life. I'm just an addict and, and actually be so helpless and hopeless and, you know, and, and really didn't even care about it. Um, as a matter of fact, if I was high, you could judge me. I didn't care. Yeah, I am. And, and that was my life. So it wasn't until I, I lived my life in abusive relationships. So all my relationships were abusive only because I needed to um, sustain my, my, my addiction and, and my drugs. So I needed to be with someone that could do that for me. And usually that meant, um, you know, maybe a dealer or someone that had a lot of money that was also using. So they would understand that, you know, I need to use and you're going to help me do this. So those relationships every time will be of one that's filled with domestic violence. So I, and, and they usually lasted long for me because um, meth just, it just time flies by, like all of a sudden a year has gone by and that felt like it was just a month. I would be in my relationships for like maybe 10, 10 years at a time. So my very last relationship, um, I was being abused and I just, I, I was getting so old. I knew my body couldn't take any more. It couldn't take any more broken ribs. It couldn't take any more black eyes. Um, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. So I, I gave an ultimatum. I said, you know, this, this has to stop. I'm calling the police. Um, because there's, um, one thing you don't do when you use, you don't ever tell on anyone because especially if you're telling on the person that's supplying your, supplying your addiction, that that's like automatic death. You, you don't win anyway. And it's easier to get a black eye or a broken rib than um, not being able to get high the next day. So you just didn't mm -hmm. do that. But I was to my wits end. And so um, the man I was with said, okay, well, you know what? I, I swear I won't hurt you anymore. And um, I'm gonna give you a gift. I'm gonna give you a puppy. And I got this puppy. So he did keep his word. He didn't hurt me, but um, I developed this love for this puppy because it was mine. Um, I have had never had kids. I've never been married. I finally had something that was mine that I knew would grow to love me because I would be the mom of, you know, the mama puppy, <laughs> the mom of the puppy. Um, so it turned out that instead of hurting me, he hurt the puppy to hurt me. And that, oh my gosh, I, and my sister says this all the time. If you would have had kids early on, you probably would have not become such a full-fledged addict because with just that one time of him hurting my puppy, I said, I I'm out of here. I, this is it. I can't do this. So my sister took me in and for years, my sister would always look for me, um, and try to get me help knowing that, um, it was my decision to get help. She wasn't going to force me to do it. And she learned this because one of her very good friends um, was also, um, it was an also someone who completed ADAP and got help. And um, they introduced her to ADAP. But the one thing they, they mentioned to her is that I would have to make a conscious decision to want to quit and to want to change. It wasn't going to, treatment was not going to work if, if I was being forced into it. So, um, you know, my sister came and picked me up from this home that I was being abused in it or was being abused. And now my puppy was abused. Um, and she took me in and she's, and, um, I was there for a few days and she turned around and said, so what are you going to do now? You have a puppy, like, who's going to take care of your puppy if you're high. And I was like, 
I don't know, but what am I going to do? I can't leave my puppy. And so, and this, you know, this conversation sounds so elementary, right? But for an addict, it's like anything that you can do and manipulate yourself to get people to do for you, you will. You'll say, Mm -hmm. I think about it and I'm thinking, wow, how, how did I think that I was just going to get away with saying something so dumb like that? Like, I was like, I can't leave my puppy. Who's going to take care of my puppy? And then of course the conversation would be like, well, I will take care of your puppy. (laughs) So we went through this, you know, back and forth. And I was like, you won't take care of my, yes, I'll take care of you. So anyways, she finally got me to at least say, okay, I'll try to do treatment. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. how I was introduced to ADAP. My biggest story at ADAP is that my dog saved my life because um, if that didn't happen, um, I probably would never have gotten help because, you know, it's just me. I didn't, there was nothing that I really had to live for. I threw away Mm -hmm. my career. I practically threw away my family. I I, I failed to mention this. Um, I was in my addiction for 23 years. I was so filled with guilt and shame and embarrassment of what I become because um, I couldn't support myself. I was you know, I, I didn't have anything. I was well into my thirties and forties. Um, there was a point where I didn't see my family for five years and they didn't know where I was. They, all they would know is that people would have had seen me somewhere and say, Oh yeah, I saw your sister. She's alive. And that's all they had to go by. But, you know, just to let you know, how many times have people seen me? I don't know, maybe once a year, maybe every six months or even that imagine and this is what hurt me the most um, after I got sober and started to realize the pain that I caused my family was that they would go months and maybe years of not knowing where I was and I don't know if you ever watch the news but a lot of times you'll hear unidentified woman found dead um, on the side of the road in a bush in in the mountains or wherever and unidentified and immediately my sister would tell me first thing she would do is pray, please don't let that be my sister. How many times have people after 24 hours haven't heard from their loved one and report them missing? After a week, all of a sudden they have rewards going out, you know, rewards for um, any information on, um, on the person missing. And imagine me missing five years, six months, one year, just them not knowing and then knowing what kind of lifestyle I was living. Um, how much that hurt. Like that is, um, I think about it now and just having, just, you know, just being empathetic towards the pain that I caused my family, um, is enough to keep me sober today, but, um, I do a lot of other things. So excuse me. Sorry. No, not at all. Thank you so much for sharing that Yvette. That was very, very powerful to hear. And I could tell how difficult it is to talk about because, it seems like when you're in you know, the midst of the addiction within those years, you care about your family, but the addiction is just so strong that you, can't even, you don't even think about your family until now you're sort of out of the, the haze of all of it. And you're like, wow, I, I, that was a painful thing to have put my family through it. And um, thank you for sharing that. Um, I also love how your dog was sort of the reason. <laughs> is that your dog in the background that we hear right now? <laughs> Yeah, but um, so the dog that I had, a lot of changes happened for me and a lot. um, I'm going to tell you something about recovery. Recovery is maintenance. It's not that you're cured. It's it's maintaining yourself so that you have a healthy lifestyle. Mm. Um, And I always say this and I say this to myself every day. I am one thought 
from relapsing because that's what Mm. that thought will bring me to use because with Mm -hmm. every thought there's always a behavior right and so Mm -hmm. I always have to watch myself Um, so what happened was um, I had to make there's a lot of decisions you have to make and they're painful ones sometimes but then sometimes the most painful ones are the best you know are the best I had to get rid of Smokey my dog because um, um, I had to move um, and live somewhere where they did not accept dogs so but Smokey because what I, um, I got out of treatment. I started working. I was working a lot, volunteering a lot. Um, I wasn't home enough for Smokey. He really needed to have a playmate and get taken, you know, outdoors mm. and run. So we found him such a good family to live with, with a big backyard and kids that he can play with. So mm. now he's not stuck in my room waiting for me crying. I, I remember Smokey, <laughs> would, I would go to work and he would sit at my window and howl and all the neighbors would be like, oh my gosh, she just went to work. <laughs> and then he would know when I'd come home and he'd be howling again. And they, they would, everyone knows Smokey's howl in my neighborhood where I used to live. So I'm just so happy and blessed to have found such a good and loving home for him. Um, it was a hard decision, but, um, it was, you know, he's, he's happier now. So that's good. Um, you know, it's inspiring because, um, it was my dog and, and I still call him my dog. I I like my, just even my Facebook, um, um, photo has him. It's me and him. I, he will always (laughs) be my dog. Um, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to say that, um, being in recovery again, it's not, you're not, you're not going to ever be cured. Just like diabetes, you'll never be cured. Just like heart disease, you'll never really be cured. You, you have to maintain your lifestyle. And that's mm-hmm. what it takes to um, be in recovery and be sober. That is such a powerful statement, Yvette. I think a lot of times people think that once someone is out of recovery, they're completely cured. But like you mentioned, that's not the case. A lot of times, for someone who is in recovery, you know, when a, when a negative thought comes into your mind, say you lost your wallet and your ID and you have to go and get another one and replace all your credit cards, or you get a parking ticket or something bad happens at work, the first thought is you go to what's comfortable for you, which is the thing that you did have control over when it feels like, you know, you're losing control at this moment in your life. So for people who are in recovery, it's like they're in recovery for life. It's not like you, you go through a treatment center and then you're you're good, you're back at square one when prior to all of the addiction and substance abuse and things like that, it's like, no, this is something that people deal with for life. Our coping skills and that, um, when you're an addict, that's your only coping skill is to use. That's mm-hmm. your that's your cure-all. You know, they, when, when people start using, it's usually to self-medicate and then it turns into addiction a lot of times. And so- getting treatment. And this is what I didn't realize. This is, you know, my, in my arrogance, I just really didn't know. I really didn't know what was going on with addiction. And, um, we learn so much all the time. And that's why people who treat people have to constantly recertify or, or, um, keep up with their continuing education because things change all the time. And we're learning new things, new tools to um, provide for clients. So the one thing that I didn't realize was that we have options, (laughs) options. Like I, I, I didn't really ever understand that. Like, you know, if a doesn't work, you still have B and C and D, but you have to know what those are. And when you're high, you don't have that sense of clarity. So, um, getting just even that little bit of clarity. I know that some people, there's a lot of different types of treatment. Um, I know one thing that people wanted, don't, don't really understand is harm reduction. 
And I want to just talk about a little bit about that. So people say, um, so part of harm reduction is like, for instance, um, we tell people how to use safely and people question that, like, why would you teach someone how to use? Well, because again, the addict always feels like no one cares, like they don't count in society and they do. And we want to be able to let them know that they do matter. And sometimes just a little, a little bit of safety measures show them that, Hey, we do care about you. If you're going to use, let's use safely. So here, here's some clean needles. So you don't Mm -hmm. catch hep C or HIV or here, here, use this, um, as like a, like a dental dam over your pipe so that when you're sharing your pipe or don't share a pipe, we'll give you another one or here, put this over um, the mouthpiece of your pipe so that if someone else is going to use it behind you, they don't catch anything. I mean, just showing a little bit of care sometimes gives someone a sense of clarity about, oh, I, I do matter to someone, mm-hmm. even if I don't know that person. And mm-hmm. maybe, maybe it is worth my life to maybe get a little bit of help even if it's going to save me from getting HIV or hep C. And then from there, you can build from that. Like maybe you can stay sober for one day, you know, like you can start helping them to commit to something just to help them, you know, help them have a better quality of life. And, and hopefully they go towards that. Um, Every little, even if it's baby steps, you know, baby steps matter too. It gets you a little closer to something. Some people, maybe they don't want to stop using because, you know, it's too traumatic for them. But then if they get a sense of clarity, maybe they can learn to get the help they need, you know, through mental health services or medication that can help them not feel so anxious. I mean, there's so many things that we can do and it might just be baby steps through treatment. You learn options, um, through, um, wraparound services, you get all that. Like if you go to a treatment facility, they usually have something in place, not only just to get you sober, because once you're sober, what are you going to do after that? They, they teach you how to prepare for vocation, prepare a vocation or employment opportunities, um, help you find housing um, and get resources so that you can afford to get housing. So it's just not get sober and everything is okay because it's, um, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. Um, you'll go through days where, you know, is my only option to use? No, because you'll learn there's other options. And that that's, and it's really important to know that when you do get treatment, you'll learn how to do that. And they, they teach you that and get out of the mindset of this is the only thing I know, you know, is to use so I don't have mm-hmm. to deal. Now, I, I do want to dive into more about addiction in the wider context of Asian culture, which we kind of touched upon earlier. But are there any unique traits or particular trends that maybe you've noticed about addiction within Asian culture, especially with your work with ADAP? So most Asians, um, the younger generation, like my generation, there was such a surge in methamphetamine um, addiction. And it's I know that it, it started off as something that they used so that people could work longer hours and whatnot. And mm. because Asians are that way, um, you know, with school, wanting to um, always be on top and at the top of their class, or even with working, um, a lot of like in, people in the medical field pulling double shifts, um, mm. working seven days a week, um, started seeing a lot of that, like um, professionals. I've seen, prof- mm-hmm. and that, and that was one thing that I, 
I was so arrogant when I was, when I was in my addiction, um, as far as like trying to get help. Um, I didn't think anyone was like me. I screwed up my life. I was, you know, I'm, I know too much. I knew what it would take to um, become sober and, um, um, I wasn't going to do it. No one would know how to treat me or deal with me and, um, getting me to become sober because no one's like me. You know, I just, I just always felt like that when I got to ADAP though, um, there it was, there was Asians there. <laughs> Asians that <laughs> had careers like me, loving families, just like me. Um, you know, it, it was just that way. Although, it, and it was this, but this is how strong addiction is. I'm sitting here, I'm hanging out with, at the time, um, they even gave us a name, the addicts that um, all hung out together. It was called the circulation because we would circulate from city to city in all of Southern California and just hang out with each other. And everyone kind of had a connection to each other so that we can get our, you know, get our dope or somewhere to party at and um, get high at or someone to hang out with or and sometimes even commit criminal activity so that we can, you know, afford to um, get our, our drugs and get high. So that was something that I saw a, a lot of. I saw a lot of, um, you know, professionals that one day had everything and then the next day lose everything really quick. I started seeing these professionals that had kids and then sometimes because their addiction would last long their kids would grow up and they would have kids and then all of a sudden their kids were using with them um i've seen mm. that um meth is and that that's a trend that I've, i i did see when i was out there um asian americans do not necessarily get help they they are the lowest percentage of people who get help for addiction and knowing that um, like in LA, there's such in Los Angeles County, there's such a big population of Asian Americans and um, Pacific Islanders and they're not getting help. And I think one of the reasons why is because I don't think um, Asian Americans understand that the help is available even without insurance, even without being an actual citizen, you can get help without having to pull out money out of your pocket. And that's the one thing that I uh, want to let everyone know is that there is help out there. ADAP is one of the places where if you need help, you will not get turned away. They will help you. They will find a way to help you um, without insurance, without even being a citizen, no matter who you are. You don't even have to be Asian American. You can be, you know, you can be Latino from a Latino country. You can, you can be, I don't, a, a European from a European country. It doesn't matter. You can get help. That's the message I really want everyone to know. There is help. There is help. Don't ever think that um, because you don't have money or insurance, you can't get help. You can. Um, and like I said, I don't care where you're from. If you need, just Google, Google it, um, search it. You, there is help. Um, find someone, or if you know anyone that, that you think needs help, um, they can get help. Thank you so much for um, sharing that, Yvette. The thing about your story that did resonate with me, and I think a lot of our listeners will um, find intriguing and potentially can also relate to is, um, you know, the personality of an overachiever and, and what that could potentially, what it is like to be in that mindset. And, um, even if they 
you know, don't know about addiction or they don't think anyone around them suffers from it, um, there's a more prevalence in it than you might think. And when you described it in that way and how within the Asian American community, we have a tendency to not talk about things and we have a tendency to not reach out for help and how that could potentially even result to a consequence where, you know, grandparents are using with their kids because a lot of these things, the substances can be a lot more powerful and, and not within your control or as much as you'd want to be able to be in control. Um, and you had shared for your particular situation that uh, ADAP was kind of a lifesaver for you. Um, how did you how did you find ADAP and, and what was that treatment process like for you? So again, my sister actually found ADAP through someone who completed the uh, treatment there. And so she got as much information as she can because again, 23 years and her just saying, whatever we need to do to help you get sober, we'll do. She had to set a lot of boundaries with me um, because I was the master manipulator, first of Mm -hmm. all, just to get my needs fulfilled. I would do anything and everything, say anything and everything just, just for that day. So today I might just be hungry and need a shower and, um, and I don't have anywhere else to go. My, my family would be the last place. So it always ended up that way. And um, my sister would try and find ways. How can I, you know, how can she get me help? Um, and mostly because some of her friends um, also would have loved ones that were in their addiction. She would tell me there are several times that she would tell me, yeah, we would get together, have lunch. And then one of them would just tell me my sister just died or my brother just died. Um, they found them wherever dead um, overdose or they found them murdered somewhere because of something, some kind of drug related thing or, and it really scared her. So um, she finally found ADAP um, and the person that she knew um, said that we will always have a bed open for her whenever she's ready. And so it actually took me five years to finally go. Um, Mm -hmm. She kept offering and I finally went because of Smokey, my puppy. And I, already had reservations about going. I thought there's no way they can help me because mind you, you know, 23 years, I, I really, I did try to quit, but I had no plan. Like, okay, I'm going to get sober. And then what? I had no plan. I, I hadn't worked in forever. I've, I haven't really supported myself um, responsibly or, in, or consistently ever. So if I got sober, what would that mean? What would that look like? Well, I know one thing, it would mean that I would have to leave people that I've known for 23 years and I would have nobody. And that sounds lonely. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Number two, I don't think I'm employable. I haven't had a job in like, you know, 23 years. Everything didn't look right when, if I got sober. So what was so good about getting sober? So when I got there, I lived at ADAP for four months without even unpacking my bags because <laughs> I was so certain I was going to leave. I was so certain. But um, ADAP set up as like a, like a micro community. Um, you live there, you eat there, you did everything there. You had a job while you were there. Um, and when I say a job, you had a responsibility that you had to take care of every day, whether it be you were assigned as um, the person that, who coordinated everything that went on at, um, in the residential um, setting and the residential setting is usually called a therapeutic community, or you would be maybe in charge of the kitchen and you were in charge of all the meals that all of the residents ate. There's about 30 of us. So that's a lot of meals and a lot of plates to make sure um, everyone had filled three times a day. 
um, or you were maintenance, um, that was a lot of rooms that you had to make sure were um, in proper working order and, you know, other areas of the, of the we call the house or the, of course, the um, residential area, or you were in charge of making sure that the area is maintained, it was clean, um, that it was livable. So everyone has their job and we're, we were all expected to do our job as best we can with what we had. And sometimes mm -hmm. that meant maybe if you were working in the kitchen, you ran out of eggs and how, what were you going to have for breakfast? You had to figure out how, you know, problem solve that. Um, mm -hmm. Real life problems came into play in this little micro community. And this is how we got treatment. Like, how are we going to deal with that? How are we going to deal with people not liking us? And that was my biggest thing. My biggest thing was, you know, I need validation from everyone that I'm liked and likable. And, you know, and that was, that was something I really had to work on. So within this therapeutic community at ADAP, the residential um, treatment center, um, you learn to live with 30 different people with 30 different personalities, doing 30 different things, trying to get to the same goal of being mm -hmm. productive, being passionate about what they're doing and living a healthy lifestyle and wanting change. That's so difficult because no one wants to do that. It's not comfortable to change, right? Mm -hmm. And that's treatment. Um, and that was our go-to saying, whenever we were going through a hard time or someone was complaining about something, we would turn around and say, that's treatment. Mm -hmm. You went through that because you were confined into this little area with these 30 people and there's nowhere to run. You had to face that or leave. Um, you had no choice. So that's why it's really important to make sure that your loved one or someone you know who you want to um, receive treatment, they have to make up their mind that they want treatment. It's not up to you, the loved one, but what is up to you is to make sure that you have boundaries set so that you don't get hurt in the process or be used or be manipul manipulated into doing things that you really don't want to do. Making sure that they know that it's not them that you don't like. It's, you know, the fact that their addictive behavior is what you don't like, what the addiction is making them do. Because a lot of times mm -hmm. um, addicts feel alone and not loved and, and, it, and they, they blame themselves. Um, another thing you can do too is um, making, if you can, and it's sometimes hard, maybe get an intervention team together that would help in, you know, in letting them realize how is this affecting not only them, but the people that love them like you. Um, and sometimes like for me, that is, that's the most compelling for me. And to, till this day hurts the most knowing what I have done to my loved ones and my family throughout and not actually directly doing anything to them, but just like, like I said, like them not knowing where I was mm -hmm. knowing that feeling. I remember my mom went on a trip. She flew away somewhere and her plane was late. And just remember thinking about, oh my gosh, she's late. She's not here yet. She said she'd be here at 12 and it's now four o'clock in the afternoon. Just knowing that feeling. And that was just one day. I can't even imagine going through that year after year after year. Mm -hmm. So just letting them know, you know, that, um, that this is what it's also doing to us. Sometimes we'll give them some sort of aha moment like okay I know this is just hurting me but I didn't understand it was hurting everyone else it helps for anyone who's listening um who may be questioning whether they have a problem 
what would you recommend that they do? Because you've talked about, you know, maybe using um, a variety of different substances. But what if, you know, someone, like you said, you start out with drinking and that kind of elevated. What if someone is just drinking alcohol? How do they know and how would you define whether they have a problem? And, and what would you recommend that, how would you recommend they kind of go about processing that? So if you're unsure if you have a problem, you probably have a problem. Mm. People don't wonder if they have a problem unless they have a problem. Um, is it affecting your day-to-day living? Are you thinking of that? Is that something that you're working your life around, um, making sure that you have time to drink? Like, are you making sure that you can make happy hour every night because um, they have drinks for a dollar or whatever? Um, you know, if you're rescheduling yourself so that you can, like I said, for me, my, the way I knew that I, I may have a problem was because um, when I was using, working was getting in the way of me using. I, so I just quit my job. I thought, you know, I'll go back to working later. I, I saved enough money. I can go back to working later. Um, right now, working was getting in the way of, of me using. If you're calling in sick because, you know, you're hungover, that, that, there's a problem there. A lot of times, um, too, if you're really questioning and you don't feel like you have a problem, sometimes just going to like an anonymous meeting, either Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, they have Gambling Anonymous, whatever. They have so many different anonymous um, meetings. You may want to sit in one and see if like the stories resonate with you. If you mm-hmm. And it doesn't even have to be, oh, but I don't use that substance. If you sit there and you're listening to the story and you go, gosh, I feel that way sometimes. Mm-hmm. You may have a problem and you may want to get an assessment. Um, ADAP does very good assessments um, and evaluations. Um, you could just call them and ask for an, uh, an assessment. Um, and you can find ADAP at um, www.aadapinc.org. Okay. And, and they have youth outpatient. Um, they also have um, outpatient for adults and residential treatment for adults. If you're not from the LA area, um, they, they do have other resources. Just give them a call. Give anyone a call. Um, if you feel that you or someone has a problem, would like to find some kind of, you know, treatment modality. Um, and even for someone that knows someone that um, is um, suffering from addiction, sometimes you need, you know, to sit in a meeting too and listen to what other people are going through because um, an addict's not only hurting themselves, but they also hurt the ones around them, you know? And one of the things that Mm -hmm. I used to always say is, you know, don't worry about me. You know, this is just, I'm, this is my life. I can do it. I never, I never thought about, you know, what are my loved ones really going through when, when I come over and just eat, take a shower and just sneak out while they're sleeping and, and, and they think they're going to wake up to me and, and see me and I, and I'm gone, you know, like, Mm -hmm. wow, what, what did I do there? You know? So, yeah. So they, they really, they also needed, you know, to talk to others and, and just, just to be able to, um, to listen and share their story too helps. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Yvette, for sharing how, you know, as a friend or a loved one who is struggling, what are some, um, first steps to take, um, what are some additional tips you have for, um, I guess for other family members or friends of someone, you know, going through addiction or how to manage that relationship on how to help them? Well, first, the way you can really help them is you not enable them. I mean, um, I know, like I said, most addicts are 
master manipulators. They will manipulate you into anything to where if you don't give it, it's because you don't love me. You don't care. Do you want to see me die out here? Um, all I'm asking you for is just $40. Well, you know, $40 is going to buy them a lot. <laughs> it's going to buy them like maybe two or three days of, of being high. And, you know, they, they will make you feel guilty, make you whatever you need to not enable them and have boundaries um, because it, addiction just, again, doesn't just affect them, but it affects everyone that's in relation to that person. Um, and they will manipulate you. Another one, another thing too, is, is, you know, um, letting them know that you, you do love them or you do care about them, but and it's not them that you're, you're upset about or disappointed about. It's just what the addic where the addiction is taking them to. And, and it's hurtful for you, you know, just letting them know that it's not them that, that you are angry at or not liking or, you know, anything like that, but it's just what the behavior that they have from the addiction. And then another thing is follow through with your consequences. When you say, this is the last time I'm giving you $20, make sure that's the last time because once you don't and you give them the next $20 or this is the last time I'm going to let you come over and take a shower and eat up all the food. And, you know, let that be the last time. This is the last time you can stay the night here because I can't keep opening up the door at two o'clock in the morning. I need to go to work too. Let that be the last time. Set your mm -hmm. boundaries, make sure the consequence you follow through with the consequences so that they know. And that's one thing you, um, once um, they do seek treatment, that's one thing they will learn about consequences um, and use, learning to use their consequential thinking. If I do this, this is what's going to happen. So make sure you just follow through with those consequences. If you can also set up an intervention with an intervention team, a professional that can help um, maybe get the loved one in treatment, that would be good too. That, that takes a lot of help. It's almost unlikely to be able to do that because you have to catch up with, um, with the person and, and sometimes they can, can um, sense that you might want to do an intervention. So sometimes that's, um, you know, something unlikely that can happen, but if you can do it because you have a professional there and they can, yeah. they, they, they can help in letting them understand the commitment that they're going to make into going into treatment. Right. So just that. Those, those are great tips for anyone out there who has a friend or a loved one who is struggling with something. Um, thank you for sharing that. Now, Yvette, last question for you. For you and for ADAP, what are you focused on personally for Yvette in the near future? And also for ADAP, what is your team focused on and how can the Asian Boss Girl community support both you and ADAP? So while I was in treatment, um, I always wondered what, what am I going to do? Because even if I got a job and I clock out and I'm done working. What am I going to do with the time that I'm off of work and the time I go to sleep? That's dead time to me. That is opportunity for me to use. And so I had to find something to do. One of the things I learned to do is run. Oh my gosh. I run marathons. I, and I started this, let me tell you when I was in my late forties, I never thought I could do this. So what I'm focusing on in the near future is, um, I do a lot of fundraising. This is one of my main fundraisers is I run for our um, ADAPS marathon program or AMP. I've been doing this for the last um, consecutively five years. This will be my sixth LA marathon. I usually participate in the LA, um, LA Conquer Challenge. As a matter of fact, yes, yesterday was one of the first races 
to do the the three races for the LA Conquer. Um, it was the Santa Monica Classic, and I pulled off um, a personal record. So yay for me! So one of the mm. things everyone can do is to support me in fundraising um, ADAP to help others who are struggling with um, with um, addiction. We are able to keep ADAP running and provide services through what we call drug medical. Drug medical is like insurance from the state and the county that helps pay for it, but it's not enough. It only pays for the treatment. There's other things that we would like um, um, people who are in treatment to be able to experience. Like one of the things is maybe go to the movies. I know when I was in my addiction, I had not seen a movie in a movie theater for over 20 years, you know, and that's probably going to be true now since there's Netflix and everything, but like to go to the movies or to a baseball game. Some of them have never even done that. Some of them have probably never even been to like Magic Mountain or um, Knott's Berry Farm. I mean, just to be able to enjoy little things like that. Some of them probably never have even been to the beach, even living in Southern California, you know, believe it or not, some people have never even been to the beach. So to be able to do that, um, it costs money just to, just to drive them there just for transportation or sometimes even um, to get pizza um, and um, go bowling. Some of them have never been bowling. Some people have never been bowling um, just to do that. And that's what the, the um, fundraising is for, is to help people who are in treatment do social activities and let them know what, you know, th- these are the things you can do without using. These are the fun things you can do. Um, help them do that. You can also donate through ADAP's webpage. Again, it's www.adapinc.org and you can click on donate and donate there. Okay. Oh, <laughs> Yay. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Yvette. And congratulations on um, on running the marathon. You had shared with us that you also hit a personal record this past weekend in your training. Um, I think that is such a, a beautiful thing to take your energy and generate it and focus it in something different. Um, once again, thank you for being here with us today, Yvette, and being so brave and vulnerable and sharing your story. And for our listeners out there, um, I know that there are definitely aspects of Yvette's story that you could have related to. If not directly, perhaps you know someone or maybe some things that she had said sparked something in you. And if you have any questions uh, about, you know, for yourself or for a loved one, please go to aadapinc.org. And again, uh, also please help and donate and support Yvette in running her marathon. I think that is amazing and support ADAP as well. Once again, that's adapinc.org. Thanks again, Yvette. And, Thank you. Um, I'm so honored again. Thank you so much for having me and having me um, share my story. I I hope I, even if just one person Mm -hmm. got something from this or is able to share this with a loved one that is suffering from addiction, that's my only, my only hope is that, you know, my story gets out there and people know that you are not alone and there is help. There's help there. Just get it. Thank you, Yvette. And for all of our Asian Boss Girl listeners, we will catch you all on next week's episode. Bye!